Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Mark and I are playing musical chairs this morning. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good to be here. I'm full excited. I'm married to amazing, beautiful Palisa. I'll say it again. We celebrated our ninth anniversary this past week. And for all of you who don't know me, I am not Wayne. I'm choosing to make it a bit harder today. I put my confidence on today as well. But I'm not Wayne. People keep mixing us up. Um, I found out recently that Wayne also almost ended up being a worship leader, so that would have made things very, very tricky in this house. Um, I'm here this morning to speak to you about partnering with God, and my slides will be up just now. It's a good slide, I like this um, And I'm just really going to go through the lessons that we can learn from the kings of Israel and Judah as they walk with God and as they live. Um, I'd not do any justice to this story if I didn't give some context. There's lots of information, lots of historical information. So I'm going to start by really talking about the genealogy, just really to give you context. Um, and uh, I'll then talk about how Israel's worship evolved over the period of the kings. And then I'll talk about seven specific lessons that we can learn from four kings in particular. These are Solomon, Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah. There's going to be a lot of information coming your way this morning, right? So pay attention, please. I hope you've had coffee and a wider wake. But first, before we get into it, just in preparing this study, it, it really hit me how amazing the Bible is as a historical reference. It's the most robust of ancient historical reference. It lines up with other non-biblical empires of the time. If you look at the Babylonians and the Middle Persian and so on. Um, and the books of the Bible, they're internally coherent. You can use them to cross-reference each other. It's almost like how uh, in an interrogation, people keep asking the same question over and over again in different ways, and they can tell who's lying by whose story is inconsistent. The Bible is because it's consistent. The story of God's love, it remains consistent from generation, uh, generation from Genesis to Revelation. Um, you can ask God over and over in different ways. Do you love me? Do you have a purpose for me? And the answer is consistent, yes. In many different events, circumstances, through the stories of the Bible, yes, I do. Okay, so, um, yeah, let's go into it. It's a uh, buckle up, it's hectic. First and second kings, uh, if you make them into a movie, it will be rated 18 plus SNLP, all the letters will be there. So hold on, it's a, it's a hectic story, you can't make this stuff up. Um, let's go to the next slide. That's a nice graphic, no, the previous slide, sorry. That's a graphic of the genealogy, so you can see how from the very first King Saul uh, to the line, the Davidic line, David's line, that remains unbroken through Judah, and then Israel, um, that became separate. But a few key points before we get into it. The kings reigned for about 470 years. This is about 1050 BC till about 586 BC, so about 3,000 years ago. Um, the first king of Saul, he reigned 40 years. The Davidic line started in 1010 BC. It's the only line that remained unbroken all the way through the kings. Every son took over the reigns from the previous father. It remains unbroken, it remains unbroken to this day through Jesus Christ, our king. Um, the, is Israel, 
is different though. It, it's broken multiple different times, about 10 different coups that happened, power shifts uh, multiple times. Um, and the kingdom of Israel was split after Solomon. So if you look at that graphic, right there, uh, where Jeroboam happened. Jeroboam used to be one of uh, Solomon's high officials. He took power away from Solomon as a result of Solomon's idol worship. In 1 Kings 11 verse 13 it says, See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. This was Isaiah. Um, this was, not Isaiah, Abijah talking to Jeroboam, prophesying to Jeroboam. And he says, but I'll remain with two, the tribe of uh, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin that will remain with uh, Solomon. And God did this because Solomon had turned his heart up, away from God. He began to worship Ashtoreth, which is a god of the Sidonians, worshipped by means of sexual rituals. He worshipped Moloch, the Solomon, King Solomon, David's son. Uh, and Moloch was worshipped by child sacrifice to fire a wall. He worshipped Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, who was worshipped by blood and human sacrifice. And it says that in 1 Kings 11 verse 7, it says he built a hill east of Jerusalem um, for all of these gods. He built all these high places so that all his wives could burn incense and offer sacrifices to the god. This is so it's an amazing story to think how he got to that point. And then from that point on, the two remain completely separate kingdoms. Judah on the one hand and Israel on the other hand. Um, da, 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 the Judah, the kings of Judah reign for about 350 years, the kings of Israel for about 200, uh, 200 years. Now, after this, so what was really cool is you're able to piece together the history and realize how clearly it lines up in terms of timelines. Israel and Judah both went into captivity separately. Judah went into captivity about 130 years after Israel. They went into captivity to the Babylonians, which were present-day Iraqis. Israel, on the other hand, went into captivity to the Assyrians, which is where present-day Syria is. Two separate. Um, and the first deportations took place from Judah to Babylon about 605 BC. This included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and then there was this a series of deportations all the way to 586 BC when Babylon was completely, completely destroyed. The temple was destroyed, the temple that Solomon had built, and the walls of Jerusalem, the city itself, were destroyed. And then they remained in captivity about 70 years until Babylon fell to the Medo Persian Empire. This is Iran. Okay? And then, uh, so if you look at Daniel as a king, he served under four kings. He served in Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, under Babylon, he served them from the age of 16, 17, till he was about 83, 80, early 80s. And then uh, he served Darius and Cyrus. And then in 537 BC, King Cyrus allowed the first exiles to return to Jerusalem. He gave an edict that they must go back with the temple treasures that had been stolen, rebuild the temple, and rebuild the city. And this is very likely due to the interactions they had with Daniel, one man. Um, you know the story of Daniel and the lions then? Daniel was in his early 80s, and after that whole event, after surviving that, King Darius came out and said, I issue a decree in every part of my kingdom that people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he's the living God, and his kingdom endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the night. It was just after this that they uh, uh, returned the Israels, the, the exiles from Judah. 
So you can just imagine, you're just thinking, or at least I was, it's just a story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's a story that changed history. If that didn't happen, Jesus wouldn't have a Jerusalem to come back to. Because it flattened the city of Okay, and then the city is rebuilt. Now, I'm almost done with this, you don't know. The kingdom of Israel, on the other hand, fell into the Assyrian Empire, where Syria is today, about 722 BC. And it's not really clear when the exiles of Israel returned. Even hundreds of years after that, people were still debating which tribes returned away. And it's funny that today, Israel has become synonymous with the people of the tribe of Judah. Okay, and then another key point just to highlight before we get into it, is that it's really interesting how history lines up with the prophecies in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, the statue, there's a, yeah, the statue, gold statue that describes each of the different empires from head of gold to silver to bronze to iron legs. Um, he predicts the fall of Babylon in 539 BC, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, these were empires that were sweeping from east to west, in five, uh, from 539 BC to 330 BC, the rise of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great from 330 BC to 63 BC, and the Roman Empire under Julius Caesar during the time of Jesus from 63 BC onwards, and eventually the rise of the Anglo-American world power, which is the age that we live in today. So that the feet of iron and clay, the divided kingdom is described as. That's the age that we, we live in today. And it's funny how it is so characteristic of what we see in today's world. Okay, so just some points of information. Let's talk about the evolution of worship in Israel. Are you guys still there? Yeah. Everyone's still there? Yeah. Cool. During the reign of the kings of Israel, so that's this line, the pink line here, a total of 19 kings of about 210 years, not one king served God wholeheartedly. Only Jehu started off good and ended up doing his own thing eventually. Um, they all turned away from God, they all worshipped idols, focused on self-gain and evil. Um, Judah, on the other hand, it's a total of 20 kings, they reigned almost twice the time, about 350 years. Only five kings sold the Lord. Of all the 20 kings, only five did. Um, so after they came out of Canaan, they started following the rituals of the Canaanites, worshipping God on Baal sites. Eventually that ended up mixing the idol worship with that of the worship of God, and eventually it just became all-out idol worshippers. They eventually started worshipping Baals, which is a god of the Philistines, and by the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in 874 BC, they started worshipping a very specific Baal, Beelzebub. Um, Beelzebub is translated Lord of Flies or Dumb God. It's the same Beelzebub, 18 plus, as a sensitizing the children in the house. Um, it's the same Beelzebub who's referred to in Matthew 12, verse 24, where it says the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And his response, every kingdom divided against itself will not be ruined. If Satan casts out Satan, how will he stand? We're talking about the worship of Satan. It became the sanction to worship the religion of Israel at the point of Ahab and Jezebel. Their daughter then marries Jeroham. Oh, sorry, their daughter, uh, sorry, same slide, sorry. Uh, their daughter Attila marries Jeroham, who is now on the Judah side. And she introduces the worship of Beelzebub to Judah as well. 
So at that point, people of God are wholly focused on worshiping idols and Satan. Um, Jehoshaphat was the king at the time of Ahab, so I mean he's one of the good kings. But after this, if you if you go further down the family tree, all the way to Manasseh at the, at the bottom there, this is now about 687 BC. Um, he was Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah was also a good king, but it says he practiced all the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before Israel. He was a sorcerer. He practiced divination, consulted mediums and spirits. He took idols and put them in the temple of God. He was the first king to do that. People previously had separated the worship of idols for separate spaces. And then by the time of Josiah in 640 CBC, the priests of the temple of God were all grouped together with the priests of idols. They all ate of the, the uneven bread. They took of the tithe. It was just one body. Okay, that's a, that's a marathon. I hope you guys are still digesting and everything is strong. Um, but very quickly before we go into the lessons, just the northern idols, because the idea of bowing down to an object, at least to me personally, is for you need to take an object, bring incense to it, and bow down to it and worship. It doesn't, it doesn't sit, make sense in my mind. So just some context there. Um, you know, in Exodus 20 verse 4, it says, You shall not make of yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on earth below. You shall not bow down to and worship them. Deuteronomy 6 verse 13, it says, Fear the Lord and serve Him only. Now that fear is a very interesting type of fear. It's not the fear that's defined in the dictionary. It's a, it's a reverential awe. It relates to holding to God with a sense of wonder, dependence, trust, respect. That's the fear. When you look at fear as defined by the dictionary, it's an unpleasant and strong emotion caused by anticipation of awareness of danger. It's to expect with alarm or apprehension. They're two very different types of fears. However, the, the common thing they have is that they both demand the full attention. And idol worship is often driven by that dictionary definition of fear, something that demands the full attention. And if you look at the record of the first, one of the first idols after the people left in the Exodus, it says in Exodus 32 verse 21, when the people saw that Moses was longing coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Then Aaron said, Take off your earrings, I'll make them into a cap. And then he said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So they were in the desert. Moses had been gone 40 days and 40 nights. They were scared. They were uncertain. They are halfway between where they were and what they known for 400 years and this promised land that they couldn't understand when they were in the desert. They were afraid. They were seeking an idol to help them in their fear. Okay. Cool. So, in all of this, don't think about objects that we are about to get into, we are about to get into it now, that's the context. Don't think about objects that we bow down to. Think about things that are demanding our focus. What is asking for your attention? Is it the fear of not having enough? Is it the fear of being alone? I'm 35, I'm going to get married. Um, is it uncertainty about the future? Is it the fear of man? Is it the things that we obsess over? How I look, how someone else looks. Is it our jobs, our spouses? Is it the things that we feed ourselves, whether it's visually, emotionally, physically? 
What are the things that demand of our time? Even as we engage God as believers, as we are praying to Him, is it only about what He can do for us? Or do we hold Him in an awe, reverence, as the mighty God came through us? So, we're going to go into the lessons now. Uh, I'll just pause to give you a minute to digest, in 10 seconds. But that's the context that we have in all of this. And I'm really going to hit on very briefly seven lessons that we can learn from the king. So let's zoom in uh, to specific king. We will start, um, if you go to the next slide, uh, we'll start with Solomon. Now Solomon was a very interesting king. He was about 20 years old when he became king. And he asked God for a discerning heart. He wanted to be able to tell right from wrong. It was a very simple request. I want to be able to tell right from wrong so I can lead my people. It says in 1 Kings 4 verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. These were the powers of the day. Like saying he was more wise than NASA engineers or something like that. It says that he taught about animals, birds, reptiles and fish. His wisdom included technical knowledge. He was technical specialist knowledge, not just philosophical. It was fact. Um, he built the first temple of God, but it says, however, in 1 Kings 11 verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700. More than his congregation. He'd be having church on a Sunday just for his wife. He could have dedicated a day to each of his wives, and it would have taken him two years and nine months to get back to the first thousand. First Kings 11 verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his hearts after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as his father's heart David had been. So let's look at the first lesson. In the wise words of the great Morpheus from the Matrix, there's a very big difference between knowing the path and walking it. How could Solomon, in all his wisdom, allow this to happen? How? So lesson one, from Solomon we learned that partnership with God does not require wisdom or awesomeness or extravagant sacrifice. It requires obedience. You don't need to know anything. You just need to make the decision to partner with God. You keep working with God, whether circumstances make sense or not. You don't need to know everything. Okay, good. Hezekiah. Let's look at Hezekiah. So now we're jumping further down in the family tree. Uh, further down, yes, he's one of the last things, uh, almost towards the end, before they went to exile. He was about 25 years old when he became king. And it says he loved the Lord and he served them wholeheartedly for 29 years. And he was one of Judah's most prosperous kings. He's almost likened to Solomon in terms of his wealth, power, and influence. He was a very great king. Um, Hezekiah had seen God come through for him in miraculous ways. Repeatedly. If you look at a lot of the book of what's really cool, what I found really cool is you look at Second Kings, you look at Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and you look at Isaiah, they're all telling the same story, so you can piece together the full story by looking at all of the detail in the three books. But he 
So now, if you go to the next year, this is a good map, because you can see Israel at the top and then Judah at the bottom, and the greatest threat at that point was the Assyrians. And in terms of the history, Assyria was the greatest power of the time. It collapsed to Babylon, which rose up from within Assyria. Then it was the Medo-Persians, and then it was the Greeks and the Romans. So at that point, his greatest threat was North. They had come down from Syria, they had taken Israel captive, and he was thinking, we're next. So he was actually looking to Babylon for support. The same people they went into captivity under, he was looking to them for support. But he had seen miracles, he had seen God slaughter 185,000 men of the Assyrian forces. They woke up there, it says in the Bible, in the morning they woke up and there they were all the dead bodies. No explanation, they just died. Um, and that caused him to retreat. At age 40, he was faced with a life-threatening disease. He was told to put his house in order. He prayed to God. God said, I'm going to heal you. He said, I'm going to move the sun backwards so that the shadow cast on the steps of the palace moved back to the steps. God moved the sun backwards to show Hezekiah, I'm going to be, I'm going to honor my word. Immediately after this, the Babylonians sent envoys because they were saying, we've heard of this influential king, he was sick, he's recovered. They sent envoys to show him respect. He showed them everything. He showed them all the spice, all the storehouses. Instead of saying, look what God has done in my health, in me, in my... He showed them everything because he was thinking, I want to impress these guys because I want to form an alliance with them as support for a threat that I see no Assyrians or Assyrians, you know, political, politically incorrect. Um, and then that really hurt God. God said to him that the things that you have all been storing up, I'm going to send them to Babylon. The very people that you're looking at are going to carry them off into exile. So what's the lesson that we can learn from this? God, partnership with God requires daily dependence on him. We can never at any point turn to the things that he has blessed us with and look to them as a source of security. Sometimes we hurt God the most by the plans we try and make for ourselves. Are you guys still there? You're there saying, Amen! Come on, come on! Okay, let's look at Manasseh. Almost done. I'm almost scared that there's too much information that you guys see behind me very well. Okay, Manasseh. Manasseh was Hezekiah's son. He was 12 years old when he became king. He's the longest reigning of all the kings. He reigned about 55 years in total. It's, he's described as following all the detestable practices the nations of the nations that the Lord had dreamed of before them. And he was the worst king in Judah's history. He sacrificed the sun in fire. He practiced sorcery and divination. He took idols, put them in the temple. He's like Ahab. He's the equivalent of Ahab for Israel. But he's not. It says that he led the people astray so that they did more evil than the Lord, than the nation the Lord had destroyed. During his reign, the Assyrians came down, they captured Manasseh, they took him into captivity. It says in 2 Chronicles 33, they put a hook in his nose, bound him with shackles, took him into Babylon. And then it says, in his distress, he sought the favor of God. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty. He listened to his prayer. God brought him back to Jerusalem to reign as king. And it says, Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. 
says that he took the idols that he had built up, even the idols in the temple of Hill, he cast them away. He restored the altar of the Lord um, and told Judah to serve the Lord. This is the worst king in Israel's history. A Satan worshiper, a wizard. What we can learn from him is that it doesn't matter what our past is. We can always decide today to partner with God. It doesn't matter whether you've served God for 20 years, whether you've served Him for 20 days, whether you are not serving Him and actively rebelling against Him. It doesn't matter what that past is, you can make a decision to partner with God today. Okay, cool. Let's look at Josiah. This is the last king before we got to get into some general lessons. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. It says that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. This is probably one of the most interesting stories of the stories that uh, we've gone through. He reigned about 57 years after King Hezekiah. So if you look at that tree, Hezekiah is four kings up from him. Then we have Manasseh and Ammon who are really bad kings. And Manasseh King is up, is acted up towards the end. But you have about 57 years before the last two great reformations. Hezekiah, 57 years, a generation, and then Manasseh. It says that when he was 16 years old, he began to earnestly seek the Lord. When he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, of Asherah poles and idols. Then it says, when he was 26, he began to purify the temple of the Lord. Because that, I mean, it had been filled with idols, filled with pagan priests. He started to clean it up, he started progressing, eventually got his way to the temple. And he had a refurbishment project that he wanted to do on the temple, restore it to the, the way it was in the days of Solomon. It says, he ordered that they remove all the temple articles that are of Baal, Asherah, all the other idols in the and all the starry hosts, he burned them outside Jerusalem. He did away with the pagan priests. Um, he tore down the quarters for shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord. The people of Judah were performing sex rituals in the temple of God to worship Asherah. So what Solomon had started 300 years earlier, he says, okay, that hill is outside the city. Uh, let's keep it separate. Let's do the stuff there. And eventually found its way right into the temple itself. And then it says, um, as they were carrying out the work, they found a book in the temple. The Second Kings 22 verse 10. It says, then Saphan, secretary, informed the king, Hilkar the priest has given me a book. And Saphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave orders to his attendants to go and inquire of the Lord about what was written in this book that had been found. A book. Found a book. The same book that God had said, let this law not depart from your lips. They didn't even know what it was. They found the book of the Lord, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't even know it. The lesson that we can learn from this is that if we don't spend time in the Word of God, we will inevitably drift away from an understanding of God, from true worship to something that's false, something guided by tradition and not truth. It takes only one generation, 57 years, 
one generation becomes passive about the word of God, and the next generation doesn't even know what it is. So partnering with God is an everyday decision. The more passive we become, the more our hearts grow cold. When we become cold-hearted, it's like an amphibian, a frog. If you take a frog, it's cold-hearted, it depends on its surroundings to regulate its temperature. Warm-blooded animals, we have hypothalamuses, they control. The body temperature is 37 degrees regardless of whether it's freezing cold outside, if it's boiling hot. Even right now in this room, it's hot. You're all sitting at the same temperature you were in the middle of winter. You're able to self-regulate. You don't get swayed by your surroundings. If you're cold-hearted, <laughs> If you're cold-blooded, your surroundings dictate your temperature. So when you've got a pain, it's good, things are nice. When you haven't seen what is not so good, what should I serve him? Um, the only problem with that is that a cold-blooded creature can boil to death without realizing it. You can take a frog, put it in cold water. If you put it in cold water, hot water, it will feel the difference between the surroundings it will jump out. If you put it in cold water, it will boil it slowly. Just Okay, lesson five, and this is just a general lesson, just from looking at all of the timelines and all the stories of the different kings. Partnership with God requires a keen understanding that God is sovereign. There's no stars to the story. They're all quirky, messed up people. There's no star. David's not a star. Solomon's not a star of the story. Hezekiah not. God is sovereign. God doesn't work with us because he needs us. He works with us because by his grace he wants to build a relationship with us. His ultimate focus is our hearts. It's almost like a, a father saying to their teenager son, come help me fix the car. He knows that the process is probably going to take twice as long it's going to have to teach him, no, don't use this wrench, use that wrench. It's going to be a harder process, but there's going to be a relationship that comes out of that. It's the same with us. And the son might come back after and say, I fixed the car. God knows that he didn't fix the car, but there's a relationship there. So partnership with God requires us to understand that he is the star. Lesson six, and this is a lesson that we learned from King Jesus. Our partnership with God is built on a foundation of love. The same way that his partnership with us is built on a foundation of love. In Matthew 12, verse 28 to 24, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. So here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these two. Well said the teacher, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burning 
offerings and sacrifices, more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's a daily decision. Okay, and finally, the last lesson that we learn is that while we often see here now, like right now, most people they say statistically you can only look up between one and five years ahead. You can only plan between one and five years ahead. And sometimes the bigger picture just becomes too too overwhelming to really focus on. But God is not like that. God lives outside of time. So he sees the end from the beginning. He's seen everything that has ever happened, the way he's prophesied Daniel, even to present day. He's seen everything that's going to happen. So our daily simple decisions to partner with God have greater ruling consequences than we realize. They affect generations. It's like, it's like Daniel saying, I'm going to honor God even if my life depends on it or is at risk. I'm going to continue worshiping the way I did before. I'm going to bow down three times a day to my God, regardless of what risk I'm putting myself in. That act eventually leads to the restoration of Israel. He might have just been thinking, but I'm trusting you in my life, please don't kill me. God is thinking, I'm going to move the heart of the empire of the time. So, if you could accurately predict what happened with each of those empires, from Babylon to the Persian Empire, to the Greek Empire, to the Roman Empire, to the present-day Anglo-American world power in which we now live, it means that predictions about the coming kingdom are accurate. Think about that. If all of that could have been predicted before it happened and it happened exactly as it was, then it means everything that is said that's going to happen is going to happen. Daniel 2 verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people, to crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Daniel 7 verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be handed over to the saints, to the people of the Most High, and that will be an everlasting kingdom. God see every power. He's seen every empire from the beginning. He's seen its rise, its fall. He saw the empires of Egypt, the biggest at the time, greater than the king about. He's seen the Babylonians. He's seen, uh, uh, even now, what's happening with the US and Iran. He's seen it beforehand. He's seen what's happening in Zimbabwe. He's seen every ruler, whether prudent or evil. He's seen every ruler from the most prudent to the most corrupt. He has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us in the midst of all of that. He sees it. So because of that, we can look to the future through the lens of history and see, without a doubt, God's kingdom is coming. Jesus and his sins will reign. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning. I know it's been a lot of information, a lot of almost like history, like a history, I feel like it's a history lesson. But there's a lot that's important that's come out of that. And for me, it's bringing me down to the simple fact decide today to partner with God. Whether you partnered with him for 20 years, whether you think you know him, sometimes that's when things become risky. Whether you think you don't know him, decide today, regardless of what makes sense or what doesn't make sense. Amen. 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 Come on. That's my encouragement to you.